And just like that, the Down to Round 2021 finale is now. Yep, I had to do a reference to Sex in the City, obviously. I mean, if some of you loyal fans out there have been listening to this podcast since episode one, the introduction, I referenced how much, for better or worse, Sex in the City shaped my childhood thinking of what my adulthood was supposed to look like as an American. And then, spoiler alert, I learned, oh yeah, I have that South Asian part of me too, and whoa, you need to bring it all together in order to be your best, most authentic self. Starting this podcast was a huge part of me processing this. And I have to say, I'm so grateful and lucky that so many of you were joining me in this journey. I really, I always reference we when I talk about the podcast because I it would be selfish and self-centered of me to think this is all about me and my experiences. And I am also thankful that you allow me to use some of my perspective to talk about these stories with other guests and other folks who might be farther along or working through some of the same things as we tease out the tensions between our identities. Today, I'm talking to someone that you might not expect to see on the finale of a show called Down to Brown, emphasis on brown. Um, We are talking today to a four-time author, writer, and photographer, Christine Chitness. Christine Chitness is also a white woman. And so why are we talking to her today? I found Christine Chitness's book, one of her most recent, called Patterns of India, when I was looking through some books that I was uh, seeking to learn more about the architecture of India. And I remember being really surprised when I got the book that in the back, I saw that it was written by a white woman. So then I started to reread it from a different perspective. I had just flipped it through that point. And when I started to read the stories, I saw that she was not only writing this book because she thought, hey, I married a brown man and therefore, But she also wrote this book in a very respectful manner. One of the things that people have asked me is if it's only brown people who listen to Down to Brown. And it's, you know, honestly something I'm proud of that it is brown people and those who don't identify as brown, those who might love someone who is brown, those who might just be curious about our culture, those who want to learn more and be a better ally. And to me, Christine is a great example of how someone tries to be an ally as someone who is white, as someone who has bonded with the culture that they might not identify with. Moreover, Christine is a mother of multiracial children, and I think this is also her part of understanding their journey and their identities so she can mother them in a way that reflects their multiple identities. I think it's so important for us to invite the conversation and broaden the conversation to a broader audience Sometimes I feel like in these you know, last couple of years especially, people want to learn more. They, their heart is in the right place, but sometimes the fear of saying the wrong thing or doing it the wrong way might come in between and stop them from asking any questions at all. And there, I have this hunch that there are people who follow this podcast and page because also they are trying to get 
to learn more about this and expose themselves to this. And so I really do. That's why we say, right, for Down to Brown, it's from Brown women and their allies, but it's to all. All are welcome. And with Christine, we talk about some fascinating things. Like, again, like thinking back to it's all about the perspective you're hearing it from. Christine is really self-aware of the fact that she's a white woman writing a book about a different culture that is not of what she grew up with. She does it in a way, though, that is ultimately paying it back and forward to the community that she is working with. For example, when COVID-19 was hitting India really hard, she was raising money and constantly promoting different brown businesses in order to help promote the cause. She's also constantly elevating different platforms of South Asian identity to make sure that she's doing her part of elevating those voices. In this conversation, Christine and I, of course, talk about the book, but we talk about why she thought she was the person to write this book, why she married her husband and their phenomenal love story. We talk about raising multiracial kids. We talk about what it's like to be humble and how we've seen that modeling of how our parents have talked about their identities and experiences, if they have come to America and immigrated, or even just the way that people carried themselves in America back in the 60s, 70s, and blending that into toxic masculinity that we see in South Asian and American culture and how that can play a part. Imagine, you know, some of the things that we notice as brown women um, with brown men culture and vice versa, but then seeing that through the lens of an interracial couple. And then we also talk about what it means to be an ally. Do you call yourself an ally? Do you just try to be one? What does that look like? And Honestly, this is one of my favorite conversations. And so I hope you know that while I ask her questions about, you know, why you, Christine, as a white woman, I do appreciate that she's setting an example of what an ally could look like. Someone who is humble about it, who's doing the journey and the work and just continuing because their intention is simply to help elevate, not take over our own capitalize appropriate. So that being said, let's head on over to talk to Christine Chitness. I'll see you in 2022. Love you down to Brown fam. Yes, it took a bit of doing, but we're here and this is exciting. I'm so happy to be here. Totally. So I would love to start with just, this is something that I do to ground the conversation, is where in the South Asian experience people identify with. But as an ally, I'm curious, what is your relationship with the South Asian experience? Sure. So I am married. My husband is Indian. Um, my He was actually raised uh, for the most part of his childhood in Canada. They also lived in Iran. And then he did live in India for a decade in his 20s as well. So my connection to the South Asian experience is really through him, firstly. But we've been married uh, going on 15 years now. So it's now become an extended network of family and friends that have opened a wider experience to me. And then Obviously, what we'll get into is my work and my photography, my writing has uh, explored that experience as well. But 
I would say it's all really rooted in my relationship with my husband. That's where it began. And um, he has, you know, complex history with with his identity. And so I think just being a partner to him on that journey as he kind of goes through that, his process of self-discovery has been really interesting and deepened my connection to what it means to live between two worlds. Absolutely. And also, I, I first of all, I love how you describe that being a partner to his experience. Uh, I think that's so respectful and also understanding that that's, that journey just takes forever. It's never one and done. Um, and he has such a unique background, Iran, like, you know, having been in Canada, Iran, India, those are very, I imagine that also informs part of his South Asian experience is collecting all those experiences from the Western world and Iran and wherever he lived in his twenties. Yes. And I think what's been really interesting is he doesn't have, if you will, that, uh, I'm using air quotes here, quote unquote, typical immigrant experience where he moved to a place and found community and they had a lot of family members. Like it wasn't that his, his, mm-hmm. his experience was really isolating. They moved a lot um, there, you know, he moved between Toronto and Montreal and then his father was given a really great opportunity in Iran and they moved there, but it was actually right before the collapse of Iran. So they lost everything. They lost, uh, they lost everything. And so he was out oh of school gosh. for a year while the, while everything collapsed and he was on one of the last planes out and landed in Greece. And then eventually they made their way back to, to Canada, but it was a, it was, you know, without, I guess, going too deep into his story, it was not your typical, um, if there is even a typical, but it wasn't the immigrant experience that we so often talk about Mm -hmm. where you move to a community and you find your people and you're rooted in that place. Um, His was one that was, was really lonely and really isolating in many ways. But my husband is super gregarious. He's really funny. He's a big personality. And I think his childhood forced him to learn to make connections everywhere he goes. He is like Mm. the most social connected person I've ever met. I'm actually quite introverted and he's extraordinarily extroverted. And so I think his childhood really just forced him to face new experiences head on, face new people head on. And just, he approaches it with excitement rather than, you know, um, fear or shyness. He's just like, he dives right in. He's got kind of a bigger than life personality. Yeah. It's uh, so interesting because, you know, as you know, I'm getting married in what, like 20 days, but I can hear from you. Like, I always wondered like, oh, well, this like romance feels like go away. Like when, you know, 10 years down the line, but it sounds like 15 years down the line, you still have the feels for your husband and hearts in your eyes, (laughs) the way you talk about him. So I definitely love to understand, like, is that one of the reasons you were attracted to him? Like, what was your own love story with your husband that, you know, started and where you started to learn more about his identity? Sure. So we actually had quite a whirlwind romance. We, um, we met and were married within six months. So he, I know. Were you on The Bachelor? (laughs) (laughs) Newsflash. What if I told you we were? That would be a twist. (laughs) No. So, and on top of that, we have a 12 year age difference. So um, I was 24 when we were married and he was 36 and uh, he, I will say looked a lot younger when I found out his age after we'd been dating for a while, I finally was like, wait a minute, how old are you? And he told me his age. I, I almost died. 
<laughs> I almost, I thought he was, you know, I was 24. I thought he was like 28 and he's like, I'm 36. I was like, whoa. So you weren't like, um, um, check please. Yeah, totally. Well, and I like to joke. I mean, this is a bad joke, but I feel like he tried to wrap it up real quick and put a ring on it before I like got to know his, got to know his family too, too well. <laughs> Cause I would have like run in the other direction probably. So I think he's like very strategic. He's like, okay, this is the one that we're going to get this done. And then he's like, and yeah. now welcome to my world. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> no, but um, no, we met and, you know, I just had never met anyone like him. Like he was, you know, I, I think just, he had just had this really big life. And like I said, he had this big personality and he laughs super loud. Like when he laughs, the whole room hears it. And I was just so intrigued. It was like, who is this guy? Like he was so different than anyone I had ever met. And I felt like for the first time in my life, I was like, I could spend the rest of my life getting to know this person. Mm. And I just, that, that was the feeling that stuck with me. So we met in Chicago and I was working, I used to work in nonprofits, like direct programming. And I was working for his best childhood friend. So his friend was my boss. My husband came into town to play a squash tournament. He's a top ranked squash player. He was one of the top juniors in Canada. He's very, very sporty, uh, played in college, was all American, all of that. So he came into town to play a squash tournament and we met and we just hit it off. And then we had pretty much a long distance. He was in Philadelphia and I was in Chicago and we met just a couple more times, but mainly we're just talking on the phone, these long conversations to get to know each other. And then we got married <laughs> and wow. it was fast. And I feel like honestly, the first year of marriage was really hard. Like we were still getting to know each other. We were commuting between two cities uh, until we finally came to Providence. He was offered a job at Brown University, which is where he went to school. And so we came to Providence and I feel like that was when we really started to, um, to really like do the work to make our marriage strong and successful and kind of have a really good foundation before we had a family because we knew we wanted a family. So. Absolutely. It's so radical to me to hear this sort of pattern of getting to know each other that like, I'm used usually used to from my parents who are, are like parents generation for arranged marriage where you get married quickly you sort of date in the beginning and then you figure like sort of like fall into love at a second phase and like understand each other and kind of commit in that way um and I usually always thought like interracial relationships we have that like you know kind of joke right like love marriage and like you know yeah it's the love marriage (laughs) um but it's so interesting to see like the uh combination of it so it really feels like you got kind of both of those in a way without even realizing. Yeah. And actually, I mean, this is kind of interesting. He was, he had asked his parents to uh, arrange a marriage for him. Like he was ready. He was 36 and he wasn't having luck meeting anyone. And so he had asked his parents, like, I'm ready to meet someone. Like, I really do want to get married. Um, I think he was low, you know, he was lonely. He had been in India, like living this monastic lifestyle for all of his twenties, um, kind of had an identity crisis after college moved to India, was there for 10 years. So all of his peers were married, they'd moved on, they were working, he came back to the States. And he was like, Oh, kind of looked around like, uh, I'm, I'm by myself. I, I have, I'm, how am I going to meet anyone? So he was, he was in that frame of mind of like, 
wanting to get married, wanting to be in a relationship when we met. Um, so I do think there, I, what you're saying is true. I mean, we kind of, we did have a little bit of that. I mean, without me knowing it, I think I can look back now and say, but, um, he was definitely like, he was ready. He was, you know, he was, he was older. He had a career at that point. Like he was settled. He had done a lot of work on himself during his time in India. And I think he was, he was ready to settle down. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it's clear that you had such a special meet cute with your husband in (laughs) interracial relationships. I feel like also there's sort of a meet cute of the culture too. Um, And South Asian culture is pretty significantly loud and you'll notice it. So, you know, it's not mild when you're looking at it in a room. So um, I'm curious, what was your meet cute with South Asian culture? Like when is the first time as you were kind of getting to know your husband that you were like, wow, this is going to be a completely different world that I'm going to be joining, being a part of and understanding for, you know, as lo- when I'm for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think ours was very atypical. I feel, um, again, he didn't come from a big extended family. He, they didn't have a ton of South Asian friends, like they had moved a lot. So, you know, even in our wedding, you know, his side of the family, it was a smaller showing than my side. Um, you know, they didn't have family coming in from India, nothing like that. So I would actually say that it was really the first time we traveled to India. And that was a year after we were married. So we got married and a year later, my husband really wanted to have a ceremony in India. So a year later, we went to India, my parents came with us. And we had we traveled and kind of had a wonderful trip. And then we also had a ceremony, uh, marriage ceremony. But I would say that was my introduction. You know, it was like, I just went right in, like, it was really an introduction to India, rather than like the South Asian experience here in the States. Um, And that I think the South Asian experience in the States has come slowly, Like, like, I'll go to Indian events, we get to know, you know, our community has expanded significantly here to include a lot of South Asian families. Um, So it's been this like slow reveal over time. And now, you know, I feel like in the beginning, we were joking about timeliness, like now I understand all the inside jokes about like, you know, the Daisy standard time or like things like that, like, but it's been a slow reveal over time, as we expand our community and get to know you know, the, the South Asian community here and also, you know, go to big weddings. Like we've now done all of these things that have introduced me to the side that probably other interracial couples were introduced to at their own wedding or a lot sooner. But I think Mm -hmm. in my husband's case, because his family has such a unique background here and, uh, it it just, it took longer and kind of happened slowly over many years. Absolutely. And I appreciate you teasing that out because I think it's so different in some ways that experience of being South Asian in North America. And, you know, I'll speak to the U.S. since I know that more than, you know, uh, where your husband's from in Canada. Um, And then also South Asia, like literally, because even my cousins, they would tease me because they're like, why are you taking Bharatanatyam classes? Like no one does that here. You're taking the Vena. Like, I don't even know what that, like they could not fathom why we were trying so hard to like connect to these like very traditional experiences. And to us, it was so normal. Um, and there it's a whole different, like getting to the core of where we're from, um, is such a different experience. So it sounds like you did it all quickly, which is a theme of you and your husband since you met. <laughs> so, um, when did you start to shift towards 
you know, cause I started, when I read your book patterns of India, I can see such a reverence for the beauty and the culture. And so where did you start to observe it from a artistry photography standpoint where you wanted to tell its story, like help tell the story? Sure. So I, like I said, I'm, I'm really pretty introverted. Actually. I love one-on-one conversations, but big group settings and big, like loud parties, all of that. Like I, I, I get overwhelmed. And so my camera's always been this way for me to connect with, uh, with people and with, with situations that like almost allows me to take a step back and first observe and then kind of step into the situation. And so I love traveling with my camera because it, it kind of does. It allows me to observe and, and move quietly through a situation before really like coming to that place where I'm comfortable mm. stepping into the situation. Um, and it's important for me to be in the background. Like I don't, it's, it's the book. It's like, I don't want it. It didn't want it to be about me or about, I, I you know, it, it wasn't anything. Um, I know it's my eye that's that, you know, this, these photos are through my, my view and my eye, but I really wanted to be an observer in this situation. And I felt like I was given this really, really unique gift where I was able to travel to India with someone who spoke the language, who moved around, you know, as if he was from there. Um, you know, my, my husband speaks um, Hindi and he speaks Bengali and, um, and we were able to move around as if we were from there, but I'm very much a tourist there. So I'm having these dual experiences, like on one hand feel this very intimate connection to India through my husband. And, and then on the other hand, I am very much an outsider and an observer, but I tried to use that to my advantage and say, and see, and see both, see that intimate side, but also kind of step back and, and observe um, what makes this country so unique and beautiful. And the surface design, you know, as someone who does love color and patterns, the surface design in India, the history behind it, it's unparalleled. It's there's nowhere like it in the world. And I, I just, I was, I was blown away the first time I went, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. you know, you grow, grow up in, in like New England or, you know, I grew up in Michigan and we have these very gray, you know, winters and like, and then you go to India and it was just, it was just color and pattern and richness yeah. and, and, uh, and really just a feast for all senses. And I was hoping to try and observe that through my photography. Absolutely. I, there's so much, it's so interesting. You have such a consistent theme to how you approach things, at least from my third party observation, the way you connected with photography, like to me is sort of how you've connected with cultures. Um, your point about observing before you engage, I think that's actually very powerful for the way that we're also being challenged in the last couple of years. Not that like all of these issues didn't exist before, but I think since the country is going through a reckoning in the last couple of years of observe first, then start to process and figure out how to engage respectfully, I think is a really, the way that you've painted that metaphor through your work, it's almost a way that I would say that could be approached when we're trying to understand different cultures and engage with different cultures. Um, And I'd love to understand how you, when you started to like think about okay, I love this country. It's a part of my life. Um, this culture, when did you decide how to write a book about this? So it never was my intention. It wasn't something, um, I set out to do. I didn't land in India. Like I'm going to write a book about this. Like I I would never be so bold to do that. I, I felt 
you know, I still sometimes think, who am I to have written this book? I, 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 I understand the skepticism around a white woman writing this book. What I noticed in travel that was really upsetting to me was people going to a place and they pull out their iPhone and they take their picture and then they say, oh, I've seen India. Like I took the picture, the picture that's on Instagram and I've seen it and I've done that. And I just thought, yes, that picture is beautiful, but do you understand what's going on behind it? Like, do you understand the history of that photo? Do you understand what you're seeing there that makes it so beautiful, so appealing? And I wanted to really encourage people to slow down and not in an academic way, but just kind of say like, let me give you some context to that beautiful image. Let's go to a place and travel to a place and, and really come out with a deeper understanding of the place and its people and its complexities and its history, instead of just like, I got the Instagram shot. <laughs> yeah. And so it was almost, it became like a challenge to, to myself and others to really really reflect on the way that we travel and the way that we inter in interface with other cultures. And again, like being this respectful observer and I, in the 10 years that, you know, the decade that we traveled to India, I noticed this shift where you'd get tour buses of people and they just unload and they all have their selfie sticks and they take all their photos and then they get back on the bus and off they go. And it's like, what did, what did you just get out of that experience? You know, did, what, what was your deeper connection to the place that you just saw? So I think my book was a little bit of challenging travelers to go a little bit deeper and have a real respect and understanding for the places that we go. Um, and again, I was allowed to do that in India in, in large part because of my husband. And so I wanted to kind of take, take that gift that I'd been given and, and, and pay it forward in a way. Absolutely. Wow. I'm like, Snaps, girl, because so true. I think, <laughs> in fact, I was just talking about it with my fiance the other day of these sort of Instagram tours, right? Like that you see more and more on Airbnb experiences or in general of like, we'll take you to the places to take good photographs in this area. And I understand why, you know, that's its own economy now. But to your point, I think that is the thing that like when we talk about, especially the difference between cultural appropriation versus appreciation, that's where it's frustrating for people, you know, coming from different cultures, feeling like they're just being used and picked up for kind of a photo opportunity or a quick story for something that doesn't take the time to understand. And um, I'm like, wow, inside tears in my eyes, because as you know, when we previously talked, that is my biggest pet peeve about cultures is taking the time to understand it before you just, you know, immediately quote it or I remember I went to Morocco with my friend um, three, four years back. And the first thing we did, we checked into our hotel and we started to take a walk in the Medina. And it was also around Ramadan time, which is important for context because people were a little bit more tense, I think, because they were hangry. Um, but they, um, I was taking a picture and this man stopped me and he's like, please don't take the picture. And he got kind of mad at me. And I was a little like, this is a lot. But he's like, no, Americans can't come in. This is like our home. And then after he left, I was kind of like, he has a point. Like, I can't just take this picture. And he's walking his like humanity. Like he feels probably like I'm not just a scene for you to take right. and show people. Um, so that was a really good introduction for me of like how it can come across. And especially being American traveling to different countries, how our, you know, even reputation is around that. Um, I think it made me very conscious of like, even though I feel like I'm brown and I'm like, I'm, I'm part 
crew guys. Um, I do have to like think about that, right? So um, I love how you specifically detail that because I think it was really clear in the book. That's what stood out to me. I won't lie. When I first picked up the book, I was like, wow, this is so cool. And I was like, I didn't realize a white woman wrote this. And I was like, how am I going to feel about this? So I like flipped through <laughs> and I really felt like there was that type of balance that you struck of I'm an appreciator. I have the, you know, I have, you are married into the culture. You're raising children who also share this as part of their culture. It felt very much that line of, I did it because I was invited to the party. Um, and I made sure to like go and understand the history, which is all I think people ask for when they're like, okay, appropriation versus appreciation. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, and I will still say, I, I hear people that I, I haven't received, I've been very lucky. I've, the book has been very, very much embraced by both the, you know, Indian American community, as well as the Indian community, um, which I'm super grateful for, but, but I understand the criticism and I think it's valid. You know, I can't tell you not to feel a certain way about a white woman writing this book. So, so I understand that. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I wrestled a lot with that and, and I, I'm glad it came through. I mean, my respect is immense for the country. And like you said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm raising my kids to, to understand and, and, and love, like deeply love this place that their grandparents came from. Um, and it's a challenge, right? I mean, my kids are American, like through and through. And so, um, you know, if, if this book can, can help someone travel to India and, and connect with it on a deeper level, then I, then I feel like it was worth it to, to, to put it out there. Um, but, but you had asked how it came to be. And I would say it was, it was 10 years of traveling there. We used to go every year. My husband actually would go a lot for work. And then um, we'd also go as a family. We took the kids several times. And it wasn't until I had a decade's worth of not only experience traveling there, but a decade's worth of, of photography that I felt comfortable mm. kind of saying like, is this something? Like, could this be something? And, um, and I love books. I love the permanency of books, especially in this like screen digital culture. So for me, yeah. a book is like the ultimate. I just feel like, gosh, this is going to like live, live on, right? Like a book lives on beyond yeah. an Instagram post or, or, you know, whatnot. So, um, so it was an, it was the honor, honestly, like the honor of my life to write this book. And it's so close to my heart and the fact that it has done well and that it's been well received, um, tells me there's a real appetite for this type of of, you know, uh, of learning experience that's not like heavily academic, but that does kind of Im ask you to to learn about a culture and ask you to go a little bit deeper. Like there is a real hunger for that, I think. Absolutely. And I think in a digestible, approachable way, because I think that's where part of the reason why even down to Brown, like I felt passionate about it being not for only South Asians is that it's clear that people want to learn more about other cultures. And also there is also a very significant population. I think that is very well intentioned. They want to ask the questions, but they're scared if they like can, you know, they don't ask it the right way. And I, I get that. Like I've also been there. So the idea is that you can come to a safe space and have that learning. And, and that's one perspective. It's not all perspectives, but it's a learning perspective. And I think similarly, I think your book at that, even for me as a South Asian American, that is sort of my learning style too, reader mm -hmm. style. So I think that is what was also helpful is that it was approachable. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't have to get like a big textbook to understand the history of Jaipur's monuments, et cetera. Yeah. Um, how would you, you know, especially like uh, this game I like to play is sort of like, I have to give it a name, but skeptical on the <laughs> uncle, right? Like, so like yeah. the one, the, the one question that you're like, oh, so when they're like, you know, usually one of the things that has been into question about allyship and also, you know, um, folks who are outside of the South Asian community selling or promoting things from the community is that, is it taking our story and being told by someone else in a way that then doesn't go back to the South Asian community or helps profit that individual alone. Um, So I'm sure you thought about this when you were writing this book and especially the responsibility. I know this is more personal for you because it's your family too. Um, How did you think about that? If you had to answer this skeptical auntie. Sure. Yeah. So absolutely thought about that. I mean, it's an opportunity that perhaps was taken away from a South Asian photographer, right? But, um, but, you know, at, at the time that the book was published, like, no one had done it. And so it did feel like there was this opportunity there, but absolutely wrestled with that. I, you know, I don't, the word ally would never assign to myself. I don't think you can call yourself an ally. I think the community can decide through your actions if you are or you're not. So I just want to be clear, like, I'm not out here calling myself an ally to the community at all. Um, But I have tried to use the book in every single piece of publicity and marketing that I do to, to um, spread awareness, especially to the artisan communities, to small South Asian owned businesses um, and to fundraising and not in a way that's like white savior, but just to use my profile to then, you know, raise other profiles. Like that's what I have to give my, I have a growing profile, whether it's social media or through the book. And if I can use that to help others raise their profile as well, like that's, that's what I would love to do. So whether it's through fundraising efforts, whether it's through partnerships or giveaways with other small businesses, um, I'm constantly looking for ways to have the book really just be a platform for everyone to use to raise profiles of South Asian owned businesses, but particularly women owned businesses. Um, And also I felt something that wasn't being talked about. And again, there, you can absolutely be skeptical that a white woman's doing this. There are so many companies producing goods in India and calling them artisan made without any acknowledgement of the artisans that are actually making it. Yes. Their stories, the fact that they are people, they are mothers, their fathers, aunties, uncles, you know, sons, daughters, like what are their stories? I was really interested in that. Um, and I tell some of that in, in the book as well. And I wanted to explore that. Um, but I wanted to acknowledge their work and not just like, oh, we have our goods artisan made, like the artisans are always behind some curtain, but I wanted to kind of put them at the forefront and say like, there's so much skill and beauty in what they're doing. And I'd like love to be able to show that both on the page and through the various businesses and things that we, you know, that I put on my, that I, that I share with my community. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that is a fair question and it's a tough question and it's one that I wrestle with and still will wrestle with. And, um, I do feel sometimes that if I thought about it long enough and hard enough, I probably wouldn't have written the book. (laughs) I mean, to be really honest, you know, if I let myself stay in that space, I might not have written the book, but, um, but I felt like it was something worthwhile to share. And I hope, I hope that I was right about that, but I don't, I don't know that I can be the ultimate judge of if I was or not. 
I really appreciate how you talk about it. There's a lot of humility and self-awareness there. So I think if you were going to do this, I'd rather have someone like you do that <laughs> at least because you're aware oh, of the role you. you're playing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I will say like, personally, not that like Lahari's opinion is ultimate. I didn't take it that way. Um, I think once I sat with the book and kind of read through and understood your story, it felt like this is legit. Like I would, you know, I'm marrying a Russian man. Like I would want him to feel also similarly um, immersed and appreciative and understand and dive into it. And maybe if your journey also helps others connect to it, I, I think that kind of plays a I'm sensing this, like in my head, it's sort of this tension between we're at a point where like, as we're learning more and more about our cultures and thinking of like, how can we show up? There's the sort of like colonization of culture where you take it and like profit off of it and you don't do anything for the community itself, but it's for that person or group. But then there's also this um, acknowledgement of like, when you do have a privileged position in some way, whatever that is uh, from an identity perspective, income, et cetera then you can also use that platform to elevate. And I, we're asking for more of this, especially even just South Asians thinking about in society, how we've been sort of more privileged being mm-hmm. sort of immigrating under different circumstances, you know, um, the way that we are showing up in society, like, do we have an opportunity to acknowledge that we have privilege too and help mm-hmm. elevate other communities, sister communities? So I think I, I bring that up not to get all existential, but like more around, I think I see this balance a little bit. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you, but I, I do appreciate that you take your platform um, as a white woman who might have more, you know, of a historical context, perhaps, you know, you're still, I know there's intersectionality there as a woman too, but um, you're helping provide a platform for a group that is still looking for representation and opportunity even in this space. Um, and so I really appreciate that you're doing that. Even when the COVID-19 efforts were happening in India, I did see how hard you worked to make sure that you were raising money and helping promote other causes, um, to mm-hmm. make sure without you being like, it's me, you know, like it's the Christine show. So, um, yeah. I think you did a really beautiful job of that. So I just really appreciate how you do strike that balance. Cause I think if more people could model their, you know, and I'm saying this allyship, um, journey and practices around this, I think you're a really good model for what that looks like. Um, thank you. How to do it right. Thank you. I mean, and I will say too, I, like I said, you know, as, as someone who is a little bit more introverted, like I am deeply uncomfortable having to be the face of everything. It's like, I have to be the face of the book and I have to be out there talking about the book. Like I would love for the book to speak for itself and my work to speak for itself. (laughs) And unfortunately, we are in this moment where it's like all about the person, right? Like, even mm-hmm. if you're a small business owner, you can't just be here's my product, you have to be like, here's my founder story, here's me, it's all about me, like, there is this pressure to make it all about you. And so I was very clear with my publisher, I was like, I am not, it's it's not going to be the Christine show, like, I would like the book to speak for itself, I'm going to take a back seat a lot, I'm going to like raise other profiles. Um, because I just am deeply uncomfortable with that level of like making it all about me. Like that was never, if I could make my work in a bubble and just like put it out in the world and it would go on its journey, like that would be amazing. Unfortunately, we live in a time and place where we have to be always publicizing and marketing, you know, if you want to, if you want to get your product out into the world, be it a book or a whatever it is. But um, it's, that's a, that is a challenge. I think for sure is not to make it like the Christine show. And, and I'm always, you know, I'm always 
getting opportunities to talk about the book and put myself out there and all this. And I'm very careful about what I say yes to, because I don't want it to be about me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I don't, no one needs to know all that about me. It's like really, really, I want, I'd love the work to speak for itself, but, but it's attention. I have to, I, you know, it's, it's, I have to do a little bit of both. So it, it's totally. interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's the world we're kind of like starting to live in, which is interesting too. And it actually, like on a slight tangent, I'm actually curious as someone who's one of the, you know, I would consider you, especially more than me, like an expert in the publishing space, you have a point of view probably. Um, how do you feel about, you know, a lot of these books nowadays I've noticed, like, I think the other day I was noticing like all these bachelor contestants coming out with books. I was like, wow. Like I, I'm just going to say, I was like, I thought books were kind of a big deal. And it feels like everyone gets a book now. Like they write their story. Um, so is this like, what is this in the publishing world? Is this like a new trend? Is this like, is there an appetite for like these types of individual stories coming from different spaces like this? And, you know, I thought writing a book was such a, like, you know, you take years of research to your point. I mean, it was like, you took 10 years. That's like how long Christopher Nolan took to like write Inception. So like, you know, that's a shit ton of time. We're practically <laughs> on the same level. So yeah, no. Basically. <laughs> Basically. That's what you're um, saying. <laughs> So uh, how do you, like, I'm just curious from someone who's closer to this space, what do you think about these types of this new trend, if you will? Oh man, if you opened a can of worms, I have so many thoughts about that, but um, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. There is this, uh, you know, in, in all of our spaces right now, including publishing, there's this idea that if you have a large audience, you should write a book. And I don't always agree with that. I don't think just because you have a large audience that, that you are, someone that, you know, needs to write a book, right? Um, yeah. And it used to be reserved, books were really reserved for people who had something really, you know, to say, right? But um, so there's definitely, I think the influencer culture has pushed us to this place where because you have a platform, you should do this, this, and this. Um, but I will say the publishing industry has gone through a reckoning, just like so many industries this past year, you know, in 2020 and 2021, of really starting to understand that there were a lot of voices that they were not including and in their, in their, you know, titles in their offerings. And they are starting to now do the hard work to understand how to include those voices. And that is so needed. That's so needed. And I hope it doesn't become that even within the communities, the more the, the voices that we haven't been hearing, it's still those that have the biggest platform. You know, I still hope that we can dig as an industry and find those unique, interesting stories that deserve to be told, even if that person doesn't have 100,000 followers, like that's still a worthy story. Um, I definitely think fiction books, you know, you don't have to have such a big following a fiction book. If you write a beautiful fiction book, there's still a chance that it can go on and be a, a massive success if the story resonates. Nonfiction books, you know, when we're talking about these lifestyle books, uh, cookbooks, you know, are so tied to personalities. Um, you know, interior design books, travel books, you know, these, these lifestyle, these photo heavy books are still very much tied to audience. Like you have to have the audience to be able to sell that book. But I, I hope that's changing. You know, I'm, I'm optimistic that um, if you can present a really, really strong idea that there's still a market for that idea, no matter what, what your following is. But yeah, it is, you know, there's a lot of pressure on authors to, to sell and, and to make sure your book's successful. It's tough. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, from the publishing side, they probably want to sell the book. So they'll yep. go to people who have a huge audience. And unfortunately, some of those audience, like, I mean, I was picking on The Bachelor, but I'm like, you know, if you have an opportunity to do what you were saying, where you can publish underrepresented folks, they ain't doing that. So um, right. until they have Rachel Lindsay publish her book, which I will read, um, I feel like I'm waiting <laughs> for that to happen. But um, no, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. Cause I think lately, like I, it's just been exploding, like on my page, like I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book. And it's like, yes. oh, this is crazy. Um, so that being said, one thing I really want to make sure we cover is I find it incredibly selfishly interesting what it's like to, to think about, um, I'm marrying a Russian man. Our children will be multiracial. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't even, this is my own naivete, but like for so long I had focused on just getting over the hump of understanding an interracial relationship. Mm -hmm. But I realized, you know, and especially talking more and more to my multiracial friends, what that dynamic looks like. And I honestly felt humbled as fuck. I was like, Oh my God, I know nothing. I like, I've spent all this time on this journey. I really need to show up for my kids too. Um, and given that you guys went through a whirlwind romance, like when did it strike you? Like I'm, we're raising multiracial kids and we're going to have to do this a little differently than how even our respective journey was as bringing the individual identities together. Sure. I mean, I think as soon as I started to understand how deeply affected my husband was by his childhood, I was like, oh, this is important. Like he, because he, you know, his parents really came here and didn't, didn't bring any of the traditions or language or anything with them. They really were like, we're going to move to Canada and we will be Canadian. And there's so many reasons they did that. And I'm not, not passing any judgment, but that was what they chose to do. And so my husband really had this like identity crisis. Like I am a visible minority. I am Indian in looks and in name. And yet I don't speak the language. Like I don't have an understanding of, of, the religions of the history, like all of these things are I'm missing, like, what am I doing? And he really had to do a lot of work to come to a place to, to be, to, to, to be in a healthy space with his identity. So I knew right away, like, okay, this Mm -hmm. is something we are going to have to do with our kids to really help them on their journey. And, and I can't be an expert in that area, right? Like I'm a white woman. So like I can help facilitate, but I'm never going to know what it's like to walk in their shoes. And in many ways, my husband, he'll know certainly more than I will, but he's not an expert either in what it means to be multiracial. Um, so I think, you know, right away, it's just like being humble about it. Like, I don't know what I don't know. And And that's okay, as long as I'm supporting my kids and I'm opening them up to opportunities and I'm educating them in ways that are age appropriate and fun. I feel like we never make it heavy. Like it's not like we are gonna sit down and read the history of India. It's more, it's more, you know, what's represented in the children's books they're reading, right? Like who are the main characters? Um, What is, when, when they look around at what they're, maybe watching on TV or like the games we're playing or the books we're reading, like what is, what is the dominant culture that's being expressed through our daily life, our entertainment, our circle of friends, that's where the biggest difference is, I think for us. And so for us, it's been building a very intentional community of, and I wouldn't just say South, South Asian, our community's really diverse and we've done that intentionally so that our kids, our kids are surrounded by other kids who have, multiracial identities who 
have immigrated to this country who have singular racial identities, but they're all learning on this journey together. And so I think being intentional about community has been probably our biggest piece. And then the second piece is we are huge family of readers. So having Indian characters show up in the text, and I'm talking about like Indian superheroes and like Arusha, you know, like the Rick Ryden series. Um, I ha- my son loves that, but it's like, there's a wonderful Arusha uh, character in that series, but like showing up in kids literature in fun ways, right? Not in like heavy educational ways, but just like, hey, there should be diversity in the books that you're reading and the diversity of characters. Um, your superheroes can be Indian, right? Like it's mm-hmm. so, so making sure that their culture that they're surrounded with at home is reflective of the pieces of their own identity, I think has been huge. And then I will say my kids are incredibly privileged to be at a school that is a uh, school committed to multiracial learning and social justice. And they have a whole curriculum around that. So it's a really intentional community. It is a private school, so it's a massive privilege to be there. And we have to really like talk about that privilege and what that means. Um, But that's been huge for them as well because they are doing curriculum, they're doing projects that explore their identity in school and they're doing it alongside all of their peers. So it feels very normal, just part of part of their learning experience. Yeah, no, I really love that because it's I that word that you kept saying intentional. It's very clear. Um, and, you know, even looking back to when I look at my life or my friends, like a lot of the times it's the way you were raised can really help you mitigate some of the things that you shockingly meet as an adult. Um, and just having that be just a normal part where you don't even think about like, oh, I have, mm-hmm. you know, blank friends, or I used to do this growing up. Like it's the more it can feel natural, the less time I think you spend as an adult trying to reckon, um, and reconcile w- meeting this new kind of phenomena. Um, and I think that's very beautiful. And so I'm taking that note very clearly, like intentionality, making sure even from the beginning where you have that experience um, as a child um, is so important. And I just appreciate you sharing that very much. How do your kids, um, what is their, you know, when I think about like, because again, from a place of complete naivete, our journey of tensions, when we talk about like the down to brown mission, even of our, you know, the tensions of having South Asian stigma as the pressure of assimilating, that looks one way for first generation Mm-hmm. kids. Um, what does that look like for, and is it similar or different for multiracial kids in your opinion, from the conversations you've had with your children, uh, you know, for example, how we might struggle with dating because we're like, well, we weren't allowed till 25. And now that's like our way of like engaging with like the love quotient in our adulthood. Right. Or, you know, feeling like people made fun of our food growing up, like when we went to school, but I'm sure it looks different. Those tensions look a little different for um, multiracial kids who are raised by folks who are maybe first generation or have immigrated, spent time in their adulthood. Um, Can you help us understand that if that's even a unique factor? Sure. I I don't see, I mean, to be honest, like my kids are so super proud of like their mixed race. Like they really own it. Like they lean into it. They think it's awesome. Like they know the meanings behind their names. Like, you know, Vijay's victory. Um, Mira is prosperity. Vikram is, is bravery, um, valor. And so they think they have these, like, they're, they're just, they own it. Like it's powerful. They, they really proud of these pieces of themselves, 
But you also have to think like they're being raised in a generation that's so aware, so much more aware. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 38. Like I, we just were raised in a really different way. And so they're aware of different cultures. Like we eat different foods. We have friends with different backgrounds. Like that's all normal to them. Right. So there isn't, they're not like the one Indian kid in the whole school. Like that just is not their reality. Now, I think if we lived in certain parts of the country, that would be their reality. And we've chosen very intentionally where we live to, to make sure that their community is incredibly diverse and that the diversity is normalized, right? Like there is no singular child in any class of that, of that race or that background. Um, and so I think those decisions have helped it. it there, there are not a lot of tensions. What's interesting, and it's for me to unpack and it's uncomfortable, is that they have a lot of questions about whiteness, right? Because what we're hearing on the news, I mean, when we're, when we're thinking about our racial reckoning, whether it's switching from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, it's understanding the, the history of violence and oppression at the hands of white people while their mom's white, right? So how do you reckon with that? And, and they ask me really difficult questions about that. And it's, and it's uncomfortable. Like I have to really stand in my, in my uncomfortableness and I have to be honest about the role that my whiteness plays and my privilege plays in my life and the role it will play in their lives too. Um, you know, they're very light skinned. They're going to have a lot of privilege from that. Um, so I think just, and, and there, you know, a lot of times I don't have the answer and I'm okay saying that, like, I don't know, but that's something I'd love to learn with you. Like, how do we go about learning that? Um, it comes back to that being like humble, just, I don't know what I don't know. Um, and I'm still on my own journey of, of unpacking. I'm, I'm, you know, trying to show up as an ally, trying to unpack my own biases and racisms that are internalized. And so there's a lot of times I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fail and I hope they call me on it. Yeah. And I hope I'm never that like older person that's set in my ways. It's like, Oh, you kids today, you know, it's like you and your anti-racism training, you know, it's like, I hope I never, I hope I'm always really open (laughs) to watching these, these generations that come challenge us and be like, well, that was really messed up that you guys did it that way. And I hope I'm like, not defensive, but I can be like, you know what, you're right. That was really messed up. And we have some reckoning to do around that. Um, but I would say if there's any tension, it's like a lot of times they are, they're kind of like, whoa, that, you know, I was, I'm thinking about Indigenous Peoples Day because we were, com- you know, coming Just up on Thanksgiving that, yeah. and we're, yeah, we're reckoning with what the Thanksgiving story is and all of that. And it's like, that violence was perpetrated at the hands of white people. And so they kind of turn around and look at me like, what are you going to do about this? It's like, oh, okay. So, you know, that is, that's uncomfortable, but it's part of my responsibility to show up and get educated and continue to educate myself and, and be open to their questions and their, and, and their concerns about that. Yeah. Um, there is so much gold to what you said. And one of the things I wanted to click down on first was when you mentioned when you are uncomfortable, you, you face it, you sit with it. What are some ways that you've coped with it? Because I think that's actually much easier. You know, I I think that's what we ask for when that type of discomfort does come up, whether it's for someone who's reckoning as a white person or even like, you know, we have a, you know, when I'm also like sitting with discomfort and realizing like, oh shit, Um, 
what, how do you like, what are ways that you find yourself being able to cope with that discomfort and turn it into something that is a learning versus a fragile moment? Yeah. And if this is a work in progress, I mean, my husband deflects with humor, so he uses humor to deflect the situation and we're working on his own internal biases. I mean, I had no idea the South Asian community was so rife with things like colorism and classism. So I'm like, bud, you got to join me on this journey here. <laughs> like, yeah. hello, pull up the seat at the table. Um, because he's, he's a little more like, oh, you know, like, like I was fine. I grew up, I was fine. You know, it's like, no, no, you weren't fine. And there are some things we need to talk about there. Um, so I think both of us are, we, we, we're not getting it right all the time. And, but in those moments of uncomfortable, I really challenge him not to deflect with humor. And for myself, I think it's like what I said, it's like, if I don't know the answer, I'm just really honest about the fact that I don't. And I am a huge reader. So it's like, you know what, I'm going to dig into that and find out and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what resources that I need to, to be able to answer your question. Um, but mainly it's just not to get defensive. I think so many of our issues mm -hmm. right now are just people are so defensive, right? It's like, Completely agree. You're canceling Dr. Seuss. Well, like Dr. Seuss was my childhood. So you're canceling my childhood and I'm going to get super defensive. And it's like, whoa, wait, step back. And let's like understand why some of these Dr. Seuss books were offensive and they're problematic and they shouldn't be on the market. Like let's all step back and take a minute. But that defensive mechanism is what I see as like probably one of the most problematic pieces of the discussions around race, around privilege, around whiteness, mm -hmm. step back from that defensive mode into more of like an accepting and learning mode, I think. And to know you're going to mess up, like I'm going to mess up. I'm going to get it wrong. Like I definitely am. I've gotten it wrong in the past big time. Um, and I need to own that and be okay with that and just know I'm, I'm really striving and trying trying to get better, but I don't know what I don't know. And so if I, if I mess up and I step in it, like I'm going to just try and do better next time. And I think, I think another scary thing is people are so afraid of getting it wrong and, and getting called out for getting it wrong. Yeah. And lives are so public in that way that people are really scared to make mistakes. But I think mistakes are part of the allyship journey. Like we are going to make mistakes on our journey and it, you know, it's, it's going to hurt and it's going to be uncomfortable, but I think when you can make those mistakes in front of your kids, it's very different than like making it in front of your Instagram audience or something. Right. So totally. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I think the risks are lower in front of your kids to try to try and unpack these things instead of getting really defensive about them. Yeah. I don't know. And I, in that way, I think it's actually, um, there is a vein of similarity of you can just admit you're wrong. And yeah, I think you can do that in front of an Instagram audience or your kids. Yeah, and I think, in fact, some I always think about like, how do I want to do this for my kids, even though I'm a few years away from that, because it's sort of a way that I've been able to reality check, like, my purpose, like, if I'm going to do something, I need to do something that I would model proudly to my children one day. So I'm trying to live that now, even. Um, and I feel like whether it's Instagram or your kids, it's how you deal with that mistake that I think is telling, because to your point, we're all going to keep making mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, and this whole call out culture has created so much tension in our society. It's, it's so interesting, but I think again, like the defensiveness, I, I really like, I wonder why, um, it's so difficult for us to grapple as a society that 
there two realities can exist. There doesn't always have to be just one. So we can appreciate Dr. Seuss and what it meant for us in our childhood, knowing that we didn't realize, right? Like, oh, this was definitely messed up. And also realize, yeah, it was messed up. So I, I, I need to probably let it go. Like maybe I won't like talk about it all the time and like put it in my like front display and tell my kids yeah. this is like the way life should be lived. Um, so it's good to be able to be aware, which I think we even started this conversation of self-awareness. So that's where I get a little troubled of like, why does there need to be one right or wrong? Mm-hmm. Like it can be possible that even as something as silly as, you know, not silly as a music, you know, like kind of um, this, when you listen to Spotify and you're like, well, this artist, now I know this like really crazy history about them. Yeah. R. Kelly, um, Kanye. And I feel like guilty that I ever used to love, like love ignition. And right. like, yeah, he's definitely fucked up. Um, however, I enjoyed it when I enjoyed it. And now I'm not going to listen to it because personally, I just feel uncomfortable supporting him now. Right. But it's okay. I'm not going to like be like, okay, like Lahari, like you should have known as a kid, I wouldn't have. Right. Known right. So I think that's what I'm trying to reckon is like that two realities can exist. Um, but by being able to sit with that discomfort, that's okay. And we can move forward and kind of let it go. Well, and I always say to my kids, like, you don't know until you know, like, we can't know, like, you didn't know when you, once you know that that thing is problematic or that person's problematic, like now you can make a choice. Yeah. You can either continue support them knowing what you know, or you can choose not to. right? Right. And so often we vote with our dollars. So it's like, if I know, then I can make a decision, you know, to do better. But, um, but it's, you don't know until you know. And I say that to my kids all the time. It's like, you don't know until you know. And once you know, then you can do better. But it's like this idea that you have to know everything is it's, we can't, right. You can't ever know everything. You can't know exactly. And, and we are, as we're seeing the history we were taught in school, it's right. Like we were taught a very one-sided history. Now it's evolved and now we know better. And so now we can do better, but it's like at that time, you know, the expectation that we could have done better at that time as kids, like that's, that's unrealistic, right? We are being taught by a system that, that was, you know, faulty. Yeah. So I always tell my kids, like, you you don't know until you know, and then, and then you can do better. And so we just, we try and model that for them, that it's okay not to know. And I always tell them, like, I'm like, I'm an adult. And I, I'm always telling them your teachers, your parents, like we don't have all the answers because I also think that's really important. I was raised in that culture of like adults are no best. And I'm trying to point to my kids that adults make mistakes too. We don't have all the answers and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a hard thing to reckon as a child though, right? We were, yeah. we were sort of raised also I'll speak to my South Asian experience of the don't challenge your parents. They're just correct. Um, right. And it, it does become that much stickier to individuate at that point because you're like, oh, well, they're, they know what they're doing. And also a lot of that anger and frustration that you go through is just a part of your human evolution psychologically yeah. is that much more difficult because you feel that much more crushed when you realize your parents are not perfect which I'd actually rather just know from the get-go so that you're like, right. Oh, like in this together, but you pay my taxes. Thanks mom and dad, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So and we, and we talk different. about them all the time. Like I'll tell them, 
you hurt my feelings. Like I have feelings and what you just said hurt my feelings. Like I'm not like a robe. I'm not mom robot. Like I have bad days. I make mistakes. Yeah. My feelings get hurt. Like, you know, like sometimes they kids forget that. Right. It's like, I make this beautiful dinner and my husband's like, Oh, that's gross. And I'll say that hurt my feelings. I just spent several hours. Now in my childhood, I feel like that really wouldn't have happened. It would have just been like, respect your mom. And instead I'm trying to say to them, like, I have feelings. I'm a complex person. I'm not one-sided. I'm not just your mom, right? Like I, I'm a whole person. And so I think when you start to help your kids see that the adults in their lives are full people, people who have dreams and ambitions and they make mistakes and they mess up and like, that's a more healthy relationship to authority. Totally agree. Also, I admire you for being so patient when someone criticizes your cooking. Cause I'm like, did you want to cook this? yeah no there's definitely days where I'm like like no and we're not doing this like actually, yeah. we're actually pretty I will say we're pretty strict as parents like we um you know uh we we hold down the fort like our, my husband and I have high expectations for our kids we give them a lot of love and resources and everything but but I think we probably tend a little more South Asian yeah. <laughs> like we you know like you got exceptional on the math test. I wanted like exceptional plus. <laughs> so that is a tension that comes up even now. That is very oh, similar. Yeah, yeah. I will be, I will be honest. <laughs> we, yeah, we hold our kids to high expectations. I, um, I think that's actually something we, we are working on actively, but we are both, we yeah. both have high expectations for ourselves and we have them for our kids. And of course we love our kids unconditionally and they tease us, but like we, we do, we have high expectations. Our kids are very, you know, smart, they're athletic, all of these things. And we just want to like, see them reach their potential, but we definitely have to keep ourselves in check. Sometimes we're like, okay, you're getting a little intense. Getting tiger <laughs> parenting. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Not, I wouldn't say we're like over-involved because our kids do just kind of like, people are amazed. Like my kids go to the park by themselves. They walk around the neighborhood. Like they're very independent, but our expectations are pretty high for them. We yeah. run a tight ship. <laughs> expectations growing up. And on one hand, I'm happy that the whole, like, why not an A-plus joke will not die out with our generation. Um, not. So it's not <laughs> just your kids, maybe. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, what is very different, what I heard from you describing your kids, is that experience of being proud of their culture. Um, I think it was, I will speak for myself and perhaps the folks I have talked to that felt this way, but that was harder. I think for us growing up to feel proud. Like I wish I owned so much of my identity and my name and I was so proud of it. Um, and that I really appreciate. Um, and I, I don't blame anyone. Like my parents themselves were just like, we're in a different country. Um, yeah, so they're I, trying to figure it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they always spoke about us with pride in our identity. My parents yeah. made me watch Mahabharata, like the series, which is <laughs> fucking long, but <laughs> It was great because now I know all this stuff. Right. But like, they always were very much in the household proud, but I think it was like that identity crisis coming out. So it is really hopeful to hear that there is going to be future generations who grow up very aware and proud of this identity too. Um, well, and I will say that the, the South Asian jokes will continue. VJ is the top of his, that he's at the top of his math class and he came home the other day and he's like, it's me and all the other Indian kids. But I was like, oh, good. See, it lives on. The jokes yeah. live on. And it's actually true. It's like him and all, like his, his best friend is half Sri Lankan, half white. 
And then the other kid in his class is Indian. And the three of them are the math wizards. And I'm like, you know, some stereotypes just will not die. <laughs> you can really relate to that. Like mean girls, <laughs> Kevin G. <laughs> it's like, it's quite funny. But even he's like in on the joke. Like he thinks it's very funny. He's like, he thinks that's funny. But anyway, yeah. No, the jokes won't die with third generation. <laughs> oh, no. In fact, they'll probably be teaching you and your husband jokes that you didn't even know existed. Exactly. Before. Exactly. One of the things you mentioned about your husband was his own identity. And I, I'm not trying to bring in his experience um, because only he can speak to that. But what stood out to me is that it reminded me a little bit of my father's relationship with, you know, as being also an immigrant to this country and sort of having this complex um almost passiveness about the way things can be. And I don't know if your husband's really that way, but how he described it, like, oh, I, I you know, I, I kind of figured it out and, you know, this, I'm here now. Um, my dad has that too. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, he'll tell me stories of how when he first moved to Utah, you know, I had to ask him like, hey, did you ever experience any racism or discrimination? He's like, oh yeah, all the time. Um, and he's like, yeah, I had people like throw beer cans at me. And like, mm-hmm. if I walked mm-hmm. into a bar, they would boo me out. Like, you know, whatever, you know, and um, he's like, yeah, this one guy was racist with me. And then he valeted my car. And he was like, I was like, yeah, well, I have a Ben. So bye. <laughs> and I was like, okay, dad, like, I was just amazed with the kind of like casual spirit he had about discrimination. And I was like, you know, now in this age, I would be very like, I'm so angry for you. And he's like, oh, are you gonna we're going to talk about this in your podcast. Is that why you're asking me? I'm like, well, yes, dad, spoiler alert. But also I'm like, how are you so casual about this? Um, and it kind of like, I have a, such a different reaction to that. Right. So I'm curious from like, and I'm like South Asian. So like, I wonder as someone who is a partner just coming from a different culture, how do you kind of view that when your husband has those moments and like, what type of conversations do you try to have about like, it's like, I don't know, like, it's okay for them to process it the way that they want to. Obviously they're entitled to their own journey. Um, but also like, like, I wonder if that's something that you think about, like, how do you talk about that with your kids? For example, I hope this question makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really tough question, right? This gets to like a generational difference. Like actually my dad is probably, I mean, sorry, your dad is probably closer in age to my husband. So they are from a generation where it's like you have a stiff upper lip and you just deal with it. Right. And like Mm -hmm. my husband had similar experiences to your dad where he had these like outrageous events that would happen. And he's like, yeah, it was, it was not great. And I just moved on and whatever. I just, I'm tougher for it. And, um, you know, I think he sometimes looks at the generation now and it's like, oh, they make such a big deal. Like when I, when I was a kid, this would happen to me, you know? And it's like, it's not a, it's not like a trauma showdown, right? Like we're not trying to like one up each other. Like everyone can have like what hurt you might, might seem like much bigger to you, but like, this is hurting them. And that's, that's their, like, that's, that's their reality. Right. Like, but it is hard. I think it is this generational. We see this right across all generations in all cultures of like the older generation kind of being like, Oh, you guys are so like, you just need to toughen up. And like when I was your age, you know, And he can get into that a little bit. And um, I always, I do have to, I feel like I'm the one that has to remind him, like you are modeling for your kids. So when you Mm -hmm. say, when you're brushing that off, you're almost saying it's okay that that happened to you and it's not okay. So it's like, I guess I'm, I'm not telling him how to feel like, I'm not going to be like, 
it was actually a huge deal if he feels like it wasn't a big deal. But what I'm trying to say to him is like, you are modeling for your kids. And so if someone yelled something at you that was a racial slur and you're saying it's not a big deal, then now you're modeling for your kids that that's not a big deal when in Mm -hmm. fact that is a really big deal. So I just kind of put it towards him like that. It's not really my job to like unpack his, you know, I've, I have helped him. I do feel like in our partnership really unpack so much of like his childhood. He just never had anyone to talk about it with. So I've just been like a sounding board for so much of it, but there comes a point where I'm like, I can't tell you how to feel about what happened to you. And I can't tell you that your feelings are more justified than this generation's feelings. But what I can tell you is that you're constantly modeling for our kids and you have to be aware of what you're modeling. And, and so I think I just put it to him that way. He takes his role as a dad really seriously. Like he wants to be the best dad. Like he really does take that seriously. And all of us, right? Like, we're like, we're going to be like, for him, he's like, I'm going to be a better dad than my dad was. Like, it's like, we're always trying to like do the right thing by our kids. And um, so I kind of put it to him like that. You know, it's like, if you brush things off, then your kids are going to start to think that's not a big deal. And, and you have to allow them the space to like make their own decisions around that. And similarly, like I will say, not in the, not in more of that like racial piece of it, but like, he's really like, if my kids got hurt, like fell and got hurt, he'd be like, brush it off. Like you're not crying about that. And that was something we really had to work through where it was like, there's a line. Like, I agree. You can't run to the nurse every time you get a paper cut, but there's also a line where like, you need to acknowledge their feelings and, and then also help them move through those feelings. So we're like, you know, we're different parents and we both bring a different perspective to the table. I will say our kids are very tough and have a high pain tolerance. So maybe he won that fight, but, (laughs) um, you know, it's like that hyper-masculinity is part of the South Asian too, where it's like, you're not going to cry. You're fine. You're going to be tough. You know, you're going to be successful. Like we're constantly, I'm like, okay, Hey, Hey there, bud. Like, let's slow down on that. Um, so, you know, it takes a little bit of each of us, I think, to find the balance for our parenting. Yeah. I mean, you hit on such a complex topic, um, which you acknowledged even, but thank you for, you know, I think that's a really great way to start that conversation too. Um, it, it saddens me to think why, you know, perhaps your husband or my father, like, and that type of man, um, South Asian man thought it was okay. Like when that stuff happened, like, oh, it's just right. Um, and so that's the only bummer that I have in care for our South Asian men. Um, at the same time, I think like what you talked about earlier in terms of also just the dynamics within South Asia, there is a lot of male privilege too within South Asians. So I remember even when people were like, why don't you open this to men? I'm like, yeah, I will definitely open down to Brown to men, but as allies, but this is really for, this is a community I want to serve for women, Brown women, because we rarely also have the spaces, safe spaces to have these conversations. And so um, you know, sometimes the way a South Asian man models their kind of indifference to these things, it's different when it happens to like, it can't be modeled by a daughter too. Um, right. in some cases. Right. So like, it gets very complex when we look at that, which I know can be a whole separate conversation in itself, but I do. Well, and really- so, and the complexity too, around the South Asian male identity in the U S I mean, we've really emasculated South Asian men in our culture. Like they're the butt of every joke that Simps- whether it's the Simpsons or, you know, it's like yes. we've emasculated South Asian men here in the U S but then in India, they have a real issue with masculinity and toxic masculinity. So it's like, how are you addressing both of those? 
I mean, it's way over my pay grade. I'll tell you that. But like, I do see pieces of that in my husband yes. both ways. Like, um, just now I feel even with, with like Hollywood, like South Asian men are, can be seen as like handsome and sexy and lead characters. Like that's only happened in the last few years. Right. Like before that they were, they were made to be the butt of a joke or they were the yeah. sidekick or like whatever. Right. And so we're shifting to a place where I think South Asian men in America are going to have a more well-rounded, you know, fleshed out personality that is not one-sided and, and, and that's so important, but then we also have to address that South Asian ma male, you know, toxicity that exists in the South Asian culture. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, again, way over my pay grade, but, but I know that those are, those are big questions, uh, especially for, for India to grapple with. And, and, you know, there's, there's so much there to unpack for, for India yeah. as well. And also the dynamic it creates at home as a result, right? Like it's, I think a lot of communities do, I, I, you know, I almost feel like this is a subconscious, like, you know, white supremacy thing, like emasculate the man of that culture and we're good. Like, you know, they can fit into this culture because, you know, we're right. so in charge. Um, and I'm oversimplifying here, but I think it creates such a tension of then when you're the boss at home, you like are used to a culture where like literally people hand you everything. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And then you come to the U S it, it's really like jerky that like yes. comparison and like as a daughter or son, you're watching this going to a community where you don't do that, like schools and um, with your friends and other households you watch of your friends. And so it can be really jarring um, to see those differences. And again, to your point, like yeah. about pay rate also, this is a whole hour's <laughs> worth of a conversation too, but absolutely uh, appreciate is touching on it. Um, well, and I'll say, I do have so much hope though. Like my, my husband and our friends, our South Asian male friends, like the way they show up as fathers and home homemakers is so much more progressive than their own fathers. Like the, the husbands that we know, are hands-on with the kids. They're 50% on all housework. Like my husband's the same. And that's huge. Like that is a huge shift from one generation to another. And I'm really proud of that fact. Like I'm proud of them for stepping into that space. And it's like, and um, that that's a change I think that I'm really, I think is just so positive is starting really? to really understand. Like if we're going to show up for our wives and we're going to show up and we're going to undo these generational habits, we're going to start now and we're going to start by like showing up for our kids and showing up and doing the housework and being an equal partner in that way. And, and that's huge. I think that's huge. So I yeah. always feel like my husband's a massive help in that way. Like we, we are 50, 50 on everything. And that's, I think a reason our relationship remains strong. Yeah, no, it's fantastic to know, like South Asian men, of course, there's a whole, you know, I don't know it because I'm, you know, part of the brown woman experience, but they are going through their own journey of disrupting this trauma and yeah. these patterns at home. So it's really exciting to see that they were making that kind of progress on the forefront. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like even, um, girl, like before I met my partner, by the time I met my partner, my parents were like, great, you found someone who makes you happy, but it took some time to get them to like, accept that I'm not going to they not only wanted me to marry someone Indian, but someone who was Telugu from my specific community. And I was like, you know how hard it's brown should be your requisite. Like, you know, like, it's like, that's like three people, like you have three people yeah. to choose from. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know anyone. Not good odds. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm also like, yeah. And so anyway, like 
when that happened, we like, you know, obviously not with um, partnering with someone who's Indian, but I have never felt more challenged to think about my identity and to talk about my identity, be uncomfortable in my identity until I met Anton. I actually realized an interracial relationship is what forced me to, you know, face some things that I was avoiding and everything that I might not have done if I was comfortable with, you know, oh, they get it, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's so interesting. That's such a good point. And that's what I, I don't know. I, I was wondering too, like with you too, it sounds like you're able to also be a mirror sometimes to your husband and be like, no, 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 you have to investigate that boo, you know? And like, yeah, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do. And, um, you know, his, I will say like his parents had what you would consider, uh, I guess, interfaith relationship. So they had already broken the mold. His mother was Catholic. His father was, uh, Hindu. And so, their families were really upset when they got married. They were a love marriage and not an arranged marriage. So when my husband and I met, that was not a big deal for us. But everything that came after the own work that we had to do, that was that was the big deal for us. So we didn't have to, we were lucky in that we didn't have to overcome a family who did not want us to marry. Um, his parents were just happy he had found someone and they didn't really mind that it wasn't a fellow, you know, an Indian because they were already a mixed marriage in many ways. They didn't speak a similar language. They're actually the language they had in common was English. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. He still, uh, speaks Hindi and Bengali. That's really impressive. Yeah. He didn't learn that until his twenties. So he learned that much later in life, not from his parents, but, um, yeah, now he, he speaks both fluently, but yeah. So it's, yeah, it's so much. It's so interesting. I wish you and your fiance all the luck, though. It's so exciting. I can't wait to see your wedding pictures. <laughs> oh, yes. There'll be many. <laughs> I'll just be like, tag Christine, tag Christina. <laughs> are you are um, you blending both cultures for the wedding? We are. Um, with the Russian side, it's more religiously connected. Um, so mm-hmm. because we can't do we didn't want to keep it. Um, we wanted it to be non-religious. I forget the word secular. Yeah, non-denominational kind of. Yes. Non-denominational. Yeah. So um, the, unfortunately, the only uh, Russian things we'll have is like the pilmeni and borscht and vodka. Um, okay. And so. <laughs> um, Some good ones though. Yeah, for sure. And I'll be wearing the traditional dress. We'll do a lot of folks are wearing Indian outfits. That's also a conversation. People were like, is it okay? And we're like, yeah. I mean, we gave you permission. Buy it. Right. Now a South Asian maker, um, not anthropology. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, we're really excited. So thank you very much. Um, my last question I want to ask you before the rapid fire, which will be just a couple seconds is okay. The, the, the tendency that we're seeing, sometimes I feel like when we look at movies that show India or, um, I had someone who looked at my stories, like an acquaintance who was like, Oh, India just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't look that pretty, very dirty. There's sort of this like Euro chicness that has to exist for India to be um, interesting. I feel like sometimes to the Western audience. And if you show what it really is, because it's a spectrum, right? Of like so many things at once. um, I feel sometimes it's not appreciated enough because it is like there are cows on the street or in a movie like Eat, Pray, Love, the first thing they show is like the dirty slums. And um, while that exists, it also feels like to me, like it doesn't do full justice that that's the one time someone sees India in a movie. Yeah. So um, as someone who does t- try to tell that story visually, like what is your opinion on folks that, you know, like 
What do you think people fail to understand about India in the U.S.? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I will say I was incredibly intentional in the book not to show that side because I think it's that side is shown all the time. It's like I don't you don't need to see um, the poverty every time we talk about India, right? Like it's when you talk about New York City, you don't like automatically show pictures of the poverty, right? You show pictures of it, the beauty and the markets and this and that. Like I don't know why there is this tendency for India specifically to show the poverty first. And that really bothers me. I feel like that is, there's probably a lot to unpack there. Um, but but why, why do we have this tendency to have to show that side first and not show the whole spectrum of India? Um, but I think we don't talk about enough is, is the hospitality of India. The, the hospitality industry in India is one of the finest in the world, right? I mean, the yeah. hotels, the experiences, the, the culture of hospitality, that welcoming into a home, feeding you, that mm -hmm. is core to who Indians are. I mean, from my experience, there, there's, there's a warm, warmness and a welcoming to the culture that I haven't experienced in many other places. And I think that's what we should be talking about. Let, you know, yes, you're going to see things that are, that do make you uncomfortable. There's going to be poverty that perhaps you haven't seen in that, in, in the depths of that poverty before you haven't seen that, but um, there, there is such a, a warmthness, uh, hospitality and so much beauty that, but I would argue too, that maybe we don't want those travelers who are immediately going to be put off by a single, you know, issue. Like maybe those are not that's a good true. fit for India and that's okay. Um, I think what I would love to see is travelers who are really invested in seeing a whole, the whole spectrum of India and who really want to uh, come with an open mind and an open heart and just experience what there is. And I think if you show up like that, you, there's no way not to fall in love with, with India and all her complexities. Um, but if you come with a preconceived notion, it's dirty, it's dangerous, it's this, it's that, like, of course you're going to have that experience, right? Like if you come with an openness and a willingness to learn um, and perhaps do your research, like understand the incredible, complex, fascinating history of India, and then show up and be ready to experience what it has to offer. Um, I think that's on you as a traveler to do that work. Absolutely. Um, but, but I do think that the hospitality scene, I see it starting to be talked about a lot more now, but, um, India's hospitality, whether it's hotels, food, you know, all of that is some of the top in the world. So it's like, let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's lead with that. Totally. No, I really appreciate that answer. And I like your point about like, if, if people are looking for shortcut type travel, like maybe this isn't the place and yeah, um, that's great. Cause it leaves it for people who do enjoy it <laughs> because I love exactly. the hospitality thing. You, the, what you're describing, we talk about it all the time. Like we've never experienced that no. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, whether it's like our own, you know, when my partner came to visit my family, um, how he, yes. experienced it, and also in the hotels, I will willingly do vacations in India. Let's put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I just think there's this idea that you have to appeal to all people. Like I always say that my work is not for everyone. It's never probably going to be a bestseller. Like my work is niche and I'm going to appeal to the people who find a fit with my work. And, and, and in many ways, I feel India is the same. Like there are going to be travelers that India is not the right place for them. If you're looking for just comfort, nothing that challenges your worldview, you know, just slick, slick streets and everything's beautiful. Like, no, India is not going to be the place. But if you're okay getting uncomfortable and you're okay 
learning and you're okay with new experiences, like by all means, India is your place. So it doesn't have to be for everyone, but it, it should be talked about more, all that it does have to offer. Absolutely. I think, yeah, because I think sometimes you're just looking for a place that emulates the U.S., but isn't the U.S. and you can romanticize a little. And that's also an experience you can have. I willingly yep. want to do that too, right? For even our honeymoon. And, but sure. it's like accepting that, like, oh, there are cultures that are different, then you have to be ready for it too. Um, so I really do appreciate your point about that. have a few fun questions for you that if you could okay. answer based on the first thing that pops your head. Oh gosh. Okay. I'm never good at these, but let's give it a shot. You win 50% off one shop for the rest of your life forever discount. What shop would you choose? Oh my God. This one's so hard. I'm not a shopper. You know what it would be? This is crazy. It would be my local bookstore books oh. on the square. That's, yeah. I, I buy books. That's all I buy. I buy books. Shout out to Corner Bookstore. Um, when you're <laughs> when you think about the authors you admire, who is someone that you would want to be quarantined with? Oh gosh. This is so hard because this is a, lo- a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I have met the authors that I love the most. And I and I I'm always like, I wish I hadn't met you. I wish I just had loved your books for what they are. <laughs> My favorite. Like I've, I've gone to their talks and I'm like, oh, I loved you more just like in the page. You know what I mean? So it's like, I like my authors just like, I just want to read their work, but like, I don't know. I went to one and she's like my favorite author ever. And she was like, not a great public speaker and like, didn't really have a sense of humor. And I was like, oh, I wish I just loved your books. (laughs) So basically love them from afar. Got it. I'm going to love them from afar. Yeah. That sounds great. I don't want to be quarantined with anyone anymore. No quarantine. (laughs) Um, Fair enough. What is your favorite thing about living in Rhode Island? Oh gosh. I love our community here. If you couldn't tell, I love it. It's, it's a, it's incredibly creative and diverse and interesting. We have top colleges here. So we attract all kinds of interesting people and events and but yet it's a small town feel like we know everyone we know all our neighbors we walk everywhere um I I love where we live I love Providence amazing the most romantic date night you and your husband do oh my god we're not great about date night but no every now and then we do we go we we we, what we love to do is we walk up to our favorite restaurant so it's like a mile and a half and we just during that walk we talk about everything that's going on in our lives. And it's a chance to connect without the kids interrupting or anything. And we walk all the way to dinner. We have a lovely dinner and we walk home and we're just like holding hands and having our dinner. And it's just, it's like that connection, you know, no distractions, no screens, no kids, nothing. And I love our walking dinner dates. That's so cute. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> I'm like a little, cause it's like those simple date nights, the cutest. Um, yeah. The self-care hack that has helped you in the most trying of motherhood days. 
Yeah. So I'm a huge walker if I don't have my daily walk. Um, so I put the kids to bed. I'm super strict about bedtime. As soon as the kids are in bed, I meet up with a friend or I walk by myself, but I try and walk every single day. And it's like, I need that to be healthy in my mind and my body. And it's like that end of the day. Sometimes I listen to a podcast. Sometimes it's just quiet and I walk and I enjoy the beauty of the season and I move my body and I feel so good. That is so important. I'm finding more and more people saying that too, especially after last year, just like a sanity walk.